once again, and welcome to episode 77 of Be Boomer Unleashed. Today's episode, Today's Fascination with Socialism, an interview with a millennial. I'm Jerry Lake, the Unleashed Baby Boomer, and I'll be your host for today's episode and all the episodes of Be Boomer Unleashed. And we're certainly glad you came along today. Before we get into uh, today's episode, let me remind you, as I always do, where you can find our podcast. You can always find us at beboomerunleashed.podbean.com. You can find us on iTunes and Google Play at Be Boomer Unleashed. You can find us on iHeartRadio at b.boomerunleashed. And on Facebook, Spotify, and Instagram, you can find our link at Be Boomer Unleashed. And on Twitter, you can find our link at Be Boomer Unleashed 1. And as always, we encourage you to drop us an email at beboomerunleashed at gmail.com. Once again, that's beboomerunleashed at gmail.com. Give us your comments, your suggestions, and if you'd like to be a guest on the Be Boomer Unleashed podcast, then tell us what you'd like to talk about, and we'll try our best to get you on the show. Well, today's episode is part one of a two-part episode and an interview with a millennial. We're going to take a look at the current fascination with socialism. Wow, do we have a fascination with socialism in this country today? And uh, it's, you know, as I said last week, uh, this podcast is not typically political in nature, although we're conservative. I make no apology for that, and I don't try to hide that. But we're not political in nature. But this socialism business... uh, It goes way beyond politics. This is a uh, lifestyle, a total different philosophy of what we're used to in the United States of America. And we're going to talk a little bit about that day and today and try to find out, figure out why millennials are flocking to its philosophies. And it seems to be uh, pervasive among that generation. Well, today we have a guest with us. His name is Stephen Casey, and he's a millennial with a little bit different point of view. And in this episode, uh, we'll have part one of our interview with Stephen, and then we'll wrap up next week with part two. Let's go to part one of that recorded interview now. Well, folks, we're here today with uh, one of my former students, Stephen Casey, graduate from Huntington High School in Huntington, West Virginia, back when I was... um, principal there about 100 years ago, but Steve is one of those pesky millennials, but um, he, um, uh, I think, most likely has a different perspective than than most millennials, and um, uh, he might, we might refer to him as the bad millennial, I don't know, but uh, anyway, uh, he's uh, with us today, and Steve and I, um, of course, kind of reconnected a few years ago at a job fair. And when I was there representing Cabell County Schools, and he and uh, his wife, Yame, and I have become uh, pretty good friends the last few years, and very bright young man, and uh, and uh, we're glad to have him on the on the Bee Boomer Unleashed pod- podcast today. How you doing, Stephen? Doing great. Really glad to be here. Uh, I've had a lot of thoughts on this subject, uh, especially, especially here in the recent uh, weeks, month or so. Right. <clears throat> Yeah, it's been uh, it's been in the news a lot, and uh, uh, we're going to discuss today a little bit about socialism as we talked, and why millennials in particular are flocking uh, to this philosophy. T- Steve, tell us a little bit about uh, about your background. What have you been doing since high school? 
So I graduated in 2005. Um, <clears throat> apparently, uh, I'm old by the standards of the kids these days. Um, <laughs> after that, I uh, went to Marshall. Uh, I ended up getting a degree in Japanese uh, culture, language, and business. Uh, I spent a year uh, studying abroad over there. Uh, came home for a few years, uh, did a few odd jobs here and there, and then <clears throat> uh, my wanderlust kicked back in, and I went uh, to China for a couple of years. I spent one year uh, about 100 miles north of the North Korean border. Uh, that's where I met Yame, my wife. Uh, she was a college student there. I was not her teacher, um, before you ask. <laughs> and uh, this... I took a little, took a month back home uh, just to visit with family, and I went back to China. And this time, I was across the across the sea from the other Korea in a little city called Qingdao, which used to be a, a German imperial city uh, before World War One. And uh, nowadays, I am a life insurance agent. Uh, if you need a quote, give me a call. Um, and yeah, I guess that uh, I share a very similar viewpoint to you and most likely your viewers. So I guess uh, that's why I'm the bad millennial and the worst one. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you with us today. And you've, you've had an interesting life and in, in, in the young life that you are. Uh, you've been able to do a lot of things. And, of course, your wife, she's a delightful friend, too. And we've uh, enjoyed getting to know her. Steve, to, today for the purpose of this conversation, I'm, I'm going to rely on Merriam-Webster and uh, to be uh, consistent across the board here. And basically, what I did I looked up three definitions: one for capitalism, one for socialism, and one for communism. And uh, I want to share those with you as as Merriam-Webster points them out. First of all, we talk about capitalism, and and most of us. Uh, at least in my generation, are uh, staunch capitalists. We believe that's uh, the best system. But it's uh, Merriam-Webster says it's an economic system characterized by private or corporate ownership of capital goods, by investments that are determined by private decision and by prices, production, and the distribution of goods that are determined mainly by competition in a free market. So... Capitalism is a, is a free market system where there is private ownership of wealth and property. And, um, you know, the uh, people work and people produce and people make money. And that's what makes the world go around. It's a complete decentralization of uh, the economy. Right, absolutely. Uh, so, so people have room to specialize, whereas the government has to try to be a master of all trades and they turn out to be a jack of none. Right, absolutely. If they, if they try to interfere. Well, it's just like a lemonade stand. You know, a kid can sell lemonade for a quarter a cup, but if you got the government involved in it, it'd be about $6 a cup because, you know, the government, because you'd have to have so many different bureaus to regulate that lemonade stand. And, uh, and the lemonade would probably have mold in it. <laughs> it probably would. Merriam-Webster goes on to talk about socialism. Now, today's socialists will have us to believe that there's two different kinds of socialism. And you and I will talk about those as we go along. One's called authoritarian and one's called democratic socialism. And uh, 
these these socialists today like to refer to themselves as democratic socialists. And uh, but um, Webster says that any of various economic and political theories advocating collective or governmental ownership and administration of the means of production and distribution of goods, a system of society or group living in which there is no private property, a system or condition of society in which the means of production are owned and controlled by the state, a stage of society in Marxist theory, transitional between capitalism and communism. So even in Marxist theory, says the step between capitalism and communism is socialism, and it's yep. distinguished by unequal distribution of goods and pay according to work done. So I think it's important to remember in socialism, no private property. Right. Would, that, would you agree with that? Yes. Okay. Then we, uh, and, and it's important to remember that because we're going to come back to that business of private property and. uh you know, a lot of times we think of private property as real estate and brick and mortar and land, but there's more to it than that. We'll talk a little bit about that later. Then uh, Merriam-Webster goes on to define communism, which sounds a whole lot like socialism to me. It says a system in which goods are owned in common and are available to all as needed, a theory advocating elimination of private property. So I don't know, it sounds a whole lot like uh, socialism to me and uh, kind of like socialism on steroids maybe. So, Steve, think, go ahead. I think I think the idea that they're trying to push of communism is that uh, uh, it's less authoritarian. Like I guess that uh, the idea is that with socialism, they're, they're kind of using that to establish the precedent and communism is the end goal. It's, right. How I understand it. Now, you had a pro, you had a, the opportunity when you were in China to live among, uh, to live uh, among the communist regime there, and uh, it's a little different lifestyle, isn't it? Uh, yes, actually, uh, it's extremely cutthroat, uh, <laughs> ironically. Um, um, so, so why do you think? You know, I mean, my generation, you know, I lived through the Cold War. Uh, we saw uh, Khrushchev uh, uh, making a speech, and I think it was Poland one time, we will bury you. And, uh, you know, we were afraid that there was a commie under every rock. And, of course, there's a Communist Party in the United States. And, you know, you had the McCarthy trials and investigations, and, and you had uh, all these things, and we were... Uh, you know, you, we were afraid the commies were going to nuke us, and uh, you know the the Iron Curtain was a big deal. And you know, my <clears throat> my grandparents who fled Hungary at the turn of the 20th century, uh, you know, they just um, were appalled by communism because of the oppression of the people. So why why the millennials? Why why are they flocking to this type of um, type of lifestyle today, Steve. What, what do you think is going on with that? So first, I would like to address one of the points that you made as a boomer. You were you were living in the moment whenever Khrushchev 
shook his shoe at everybody and said he was going to bury us. Right. Um, I, I was born in 86. And um, that puts me kind of on the older side of the millennial generation. The, the years shift back and forth a little bit, but 86 is solidly within that uh, criteria in all standards. I was five years old when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, I was in kindergarten, and I still remember in, kindergarten is the only time where there was a world map that had the Soviet Union on it. So I didn't really grasp the, the gravity of the situation of the Soviet Union. I didn't really grasp how important it was that the wall came down. Um, I was too, gra- too busy grasping how to pour my own cereal. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I didn't really get to see uh, the evils of communism on, on a grand scale uh, when I was younger, like you did. I mean, I know that it, I don't know if I could call it an opportunity to be able to see it, but I absolutely consider it as such because you got to see the bad. You, Your generation got to really witness how bad the bad could be just by, you know, any kind of report that came out of the Soviet Union or anybody who would probably have emigrated here from there. Um, my generation, all that we've gotten to see is, well, capitalism in its current state. Um, you know, uh, my generation grew up into the uh, the Great Recession of 2008. Uh, it's 12 years later. I'm still, uh, I'm still feeling the effects from that. Uh, this recession of 2020 is just just another day for me. And I think that's why a lot of people are able to move towards that. Um, when I was a kid, we would we would see these movies like the Rambo movies and the Chuck Norris movies, where the or the Bond movies, you know, where the the Soviets were the bad guys and communism bad, you know. And when you're a kid, you just say, "Oh, okay, communism bad, sure." Uh, then whenever you get a little bit older, old enough to question things, you say, "Why is communism bad?" Some of our teachers started to explain to us what what communism is, this idea of, you know, a great equality utopia, you know. And whenever you're a high school student, I don't sound half bad, you know. Whenever you haven't really learned just yet how to critically think, and then you have these authority figures, typically of your generation, telling us that, uh, yeah, this is what Marx or Marxists believed in. You know, uh, equalizing the playing field, keeping everybody at the same level. There's no rich, no poor. Uh, you do what you can, and you take what you need. And that that sounds awful pretty, don't it? Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's been a concerted effort uh, in the education system over the last number of years to sanitize history and to rewrite history. I mean, we're seeing a lot of that uh, today and the destruction of these monuments and and um, all of these artifacts and names of colleges and uh, universities and buildings and all this kind of stuff. We're seeing that. And, and I think most communist regimes, most countries, uh, before they became 
communistically controlled, uh, they got rid of their old history. They they toppled statues, they toppled monuments, and that's kind of what we see going on today. What say you? Well, um, that's actually more than anything. That's a, uh, a malice principle. Um, the destruction of the four olds, uh, old style, uh, old traditions, old history, uh, and the old power structure. I, I don't remember exactly what the four olds are, but I know that destruction of history is uh, is essential to running a continuous communist state because. Um, Communism, as it is, can only exist in a vacuum. Uh, there can be no competition, uh, be it competition from the past, present, or future. And uh, that's the only way that it can maintain and sustain itself is by being the only authority. I mean, I don't know if you've read 1984 or not. Ironically, I bought it in China. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, I would go to a bookstore with Yamei, and we would sit there and one of the things we like to do is we would just kind of redo each other while we were at a cafe or something. Mm -hmm. um, whenever I was describing, the beginning part of the book just kind of sets the atmosphere, right? Where uh, there's no, no history. Like there's only a continuous present where the party is always correct. Right. Um, people were, destroyed and persecuted, not allowed to think a certain way. Uh, and as, as we were going through the first few chapters of the book, uh, my wife says, when was this book written? And I said, I, I'm not sure, but I think it was 1948. Like he did a play on the numbers, you know, just kind of reversed the numbers of the right. year he was living in. And uh, she said, well, this sounds like China in the 1960s during the Cultural Revolution. And I said, well, there's a reason for that. It's because George Orwell himself was a, a communist before he started hanging out with other communists. You know, <laughs> then he saw that uh, it's all about power. It's not about equality. Uh, it's power for the sake of it's power for power's sake. Um, so that was that was a pretty enlightening little read right there. And and what's really fun to do for anybody who has a critical eye is just read a chapter a day and then go read the news and see where you can start connecting the dots and, and things, things really start coming together a lot more than what you would ever think. Yeah. It was a rather prophetic writing uh, when you stop to think about it. And I've, it's been a number of years since I read 1984, but I need to get my copy out. I've got one here somewhere and dust it off and read it again. But um, it's uh, it's pretty pretty prophetic, and matter of fact, I think it was required reading when I was in um, college for one of the classes I had, and that's probably the first time uh, that I read it. But uh, you're seeing that stuff, you know, really play out yes. right in front it of our right in front of our eyes. And you know, if you look at the Bible, if you look in the Book of Isaiah, or you look in uh, the book of Revelation, or or you look in uh, Galatians, you look in all these places, and Timothy, and it, it talks about, you know, in the last days, perilous times shall come, and, you know, we're there, and uh, people, you know, every time that I read something um, on Facebook or 
see something on the news, I think, man, that's just the craziest thing I've ever heard of until the next day. And then you've got another thing coming. That's just the craziest thing I've ever heard of. And uh, the list just keeps going on and on and on. And uh, it's, it's almost uh, like they're it's almost like they're normalizing insanity. Yeah, yeah. What what should be right is wrong, and what is wrong is is right. That's but very biblical. But your your generation, uh, and I'm not casting stones at you because I think you're a little different than typical millennial. But if you remember, your generation was the generation of the participation trophy. I never got one of those. Uh, you never got one, did you? But, uh, you know, there's uh, uh, kids, you know, didn't want to play high school sports because they'd already gotten all the trophies and the rings and the jackets and everything playing buddy league football. And they um, uh, really um, had everything given to them and handed to them. And I think, I think they're, they think that they're entitled you know, it's it's the entitled generation, and I think that's a lot of the draw that you have today. Yeah, um, uh, I have a an interesting. I like to think it's interesting perspective on this. Um, everybody has a certain degree of entitlement based on their on their background. Um, I went to. I came from the West End of Huntington, uh, so. My family being affectionately, kind of affectionately referred to as the worst end, right? <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, that's that was home. That yeah. was where I grew up. Right. I, you know, when I was a kid, it wasn't really that bad. I mean, people were more or less working class rather than heroin class. Sure. Um, but anyway, though, um, yeah, there, there is a degree of entitlement. And whenever we were kids, we did have it good. And, uh, a uniquely millennial thing is this hyper nostalgia for the nineties before we grew up, before we came into the uh, recession, because all of us had a future back then, you know? Um, And then the boomers were telling us, Oh, go to college, go to college. If you get a call, go to college, get a degree, you're going to have a six figure job. Easy street. I apologize. (laughs) You should. Uh, (laughs) Because we came to find out that college is more or less a scam. Um, it is. Perfect. Don't get me wrong. I'm very thankful for the experience and the knowledge that I was able to accrue while I was in university. Uh, did it help me get work? Eh, maybe. A little bit. Not much. Uh, but it did help to shape me into the person I am today. Uh, I know that's really probably surprising to you because I did I did definitely have some socialist professors. I did have the third wave rad femme hyper feminist professors and I still came out of it the way that I am. And that's because actually one of my non major professors, uh, Dr. Shank, uh he was uh, a science teacher and he said, You guys aren't science majors. You're not here to learn science. But I'm going to teach you a little bit of it because I'm trying to teach you how to learn, you know. And he was like, and the most important thing that I want you to take from my class is uh, critical thinking. And 
that to me was extremely profound because critical thinking, learning how to learn, that is, those are the most valuable things that I got from my, uh, my college days, uh, questioning what I was taught, what I was told, and trying to see things from other perspectives. That is good. And, it's, and critical thinking is not the socialist way, really, is it? No, it's not. I mean, um, if you think critically about it, then on the surface, you know, socialism is beautiful. But once you dig a little bit and you start looking at historical precedent, and, and there are red flags. I mean, you know, this, so, the Soviet flag is red. <laughs> right. They just pop up everywhere. I mean, you, you look at the Soviet Union and it's the most uh, deadly ideology of the 20th century and beyond. Um, you look at China, same, same kind of deal, probably even worse. But yet these people still buy into it. Um, I think because a lot of them believe that they're going to be the Stalin. You know, everybody's the Stalin until Stalin shows up. Right. <laughs> and I, I don't know if you if you know what I mean by the sure. metaphor, but essentially everybody thinks they're going to be the party leader. Absolutely. Uh, the rev- and the revolutionaries, once the revolution's over, they're the first to get the bull. Right. Because the first thing that a communist government needs is stability. So, you know, people who, I guess, just sit back and watch the football game and just let the world pass by around them, you know, they're just going to walk outside one day, realize that there's bread lines and wonder what happened, you know. <laughs> and they're going to be the ones that the party keeps in place because they work and they don't question things. Um, like I said, if you question things, then you're you're out because communism can only exist in a vacuum because it cannot stand up as an idea. Once it's really deconstructed, it cannot stand up to other ideas. Well, you're right. If you hear that grinding in the background, my, my power just flickered here, and that's my inkjet printer firing back up again. But um, the... Uh, uh, the, you talked about, you know, college and, and yeah. the millennials. And, you know, we all thought, uh, well, college was the, the thing. I know in my generation, most baby boomers who went to college, most of us, were the first generation to go to college. You know, our parents went to high school or dropped out of high school. You know, back when, uh, you know, my dad was a young man. And he was born in 1926. My mom was yep. born in 1927. They went through the Great Depression and they went through all this. But there was manufacturing was booming. Um, of course, you had World War II that um, added to that um, added to that um, situation where you had you know lots of jobs available. Of course, all the men were away and the women went to work, and then the men came back and they stayed at work. So. But, uh, you know, these folks, uh, my dad dropped out of high school in the 11th grade and uh, joined the uh, military uh, to fight the uh, Japanese and the Germans. And uh, a lot of young men did that. Right. And, well, we're going to stop there for today and pick up part two of that interview with Stephen next week. We'll pick up where we left off. Hopefully you've enjoyed that discussion and we'll continue it, as I said, next week with Stephen Casey. 
Well, thanks for being with us today. Uh, Like I said, it's not much fun if you're not with us. So we appreciate you coming on board and being a listener to the Bee Boomer Unleashed podcast. Well, I hope you'll join us for our next episode. But until then, have a great week and may God bless each and every one of you. Goodbye. (laughs) 